Revelation chapter 3. We've moved into the third chapter. We have three churches left. We will end this series on August 1st with Laodicea, one of the most famous of these letters. But between then and now, we have a couple of churches that have different kind of issues. I want to show you a picture real quickly of somebody and see if anybody knows who this is. So does anybody know who that guy is? Anybody? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? All right. So this is Frank Abagnale Jr. He's a guy that claims in his autobiography by the age of 21, he had successfully impersonated a pilot, a pediatric resident doctor, the assistant attorney general of the state of Louisiana, and a college professor at BYU. Now, that book became so famous that they made a movie out of it. And not just any movie, a movie with the lead actor being Leonardo DiCaprio, a movie called Catch Me If You Can. So he made a living on pretending to be somebody that he wasn't. Now here's the twist at the end of the story. Researchers and journalists have discovered those claims aren't true either. That he wasn't actually those people, or most of it wasn't true, and he exaggerated it. So let me ask you a quick question. What do we call someone who claims to be something that he's not? A liar. That's good. What else? Fake. What was that? Imposter, right? What do we call somebody that says one thing and does another? Hypocrite, right? That's that's a lot of kind of what's happening here is he... Either really in a big way or really in a way that said it was a big way but wasn't a big way is portraying himself as something that he's not. We talked about this before, but the word hypocrite is actually a word that comes from the ancient Greek and it's used in scripture. The word hypocrite is actually used in scripture because it was used in their day of someone who was putting on a mask to act in a play, to act like you're somebody that you're not. The reason that we even talk about that is because the church that we're going to talk about today, the church at Sardis in chapter 3, is a church that said it was one thing and Jesus said it was another. And we're going to find out today that it is something that can happen to any church that is not vigilant and watchful and ready And following what God has called us to do. Starting in chapter 3 verse 1 it says this. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now a couple of things about this. Again this is an opening description of Jesus. He gives this in each of the seven letters to say this is who I am. And he almost always gears it towards what is going to come in the rest of the letter to that particular church or something about that particular church. Now, the connection is not as tight here as in other letters, but we know that the seven spirits of God can be translated, interpreted as this is the sevenfold spirit of God or the complete spirit of God or reference many things to the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying that I am the one that has, because of my ascension into heaven, the Spirit has come, the third person of the Trinity is here among you. 
The seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we talked about that before. Those, most people believe, are the angels, the pastors of the church. And he's saying that I'm holding them, I'm having them, I'm overseeing them. They are my messengers to you. Then completion, I hold them. There's another part of this that's kind of interesting because we know that Sardis was a big time kind of place for the Roman Empire. And in that particular time, you may remember this or you may not, but the emperor at that time was a guy named Domitian who was a really bad guy. And he claimed to be God and he claimed to be someone that controlled everything in the world and on his money that was put in his name, because at that time they didn't have money on past leaders like we do. They had money of the current leader, the current Caesar. He would have had his image on it, and then his coins would have had, according to what they found in some other research, seven stars above his face. Because he was saying that he was in complete control of all. And so when you get to Jesus saying, no, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. Each of these descriptions comes down to this reality is that Jesus knows all, is all powerful, is in control of all things. We're going to get to the next section. You've been with me for a few weeks. Some of you have been here each week for this series. You know that there's a pattern. Jesus describes himself. He says, I know your works. And then is what follows positive or negative? Positive. And then he'll say, but I have this against you. And that is negative. In this letter, he didn't even get to that part. He just simply says, starting in verse, the end of verse 1, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The harshest critique he has for a church is this church. And he says, you claim to be alive, and yet there is no life in you. Here's what's interesting about this. When you look in the original language, when it says you have a reputation for being alive, it literally says you have named yourself alive. But you are dead. It would be like going to the unfriendliest church you could imagine, and they called themselves Friendship Baptist Church. Right? Or love and truth that spoke neither love nor truth. It's almost like he's saying, if you had a name for yourself, back then, this is just the church in Sardis, they didn't have to come up with creative names and logos and marketing materials. But if they had, it was like they had named themselves a live church. A church alive is worth the drive. Church. Right? So marketing stuff. He says, that's what you claim. That's what you've said. You're saying this church is live. It's full of life. There's everything about it. And he goes, but you're dead. Now we're going to talk in a minute about 
how that could be or what that could be. It gives us no clue in this place because he doesn't tell us any good works of this particular church. He dives right into the negative and says, you are not what you claim to be. If you remember when we started the middle three churches, there are seven churches, three in the middle. If you remember two weeks ago or three weeks ago or four weeks ago, we talked about this, that when we started these churches, there's this progression that happens. And the third church that's mentioned is dabbling with some doctrinal errands and some things that could be problematic. And he says, hold firm. And last week he talked about that you're a church that's given into that and you've already kind of lost your witness in a lot of ways. And that they had not only allowed some doctrine to seep in, but that doctrine was leading to actions that were contrary to what God had been teaching. And then last week we talked about that it would lead to this, which is death. Churches that allow doctrinal error that is not followed by repentance. Churches that allow that doctrinal error to spread into situational and action error that is not followed by repentance. Those churches end up on the brink of losing their witness and having their lampstand, their place removed. You claim that you are the live church, but you're dead. Now, honestly, this is where I wish the Bible gave us a little bit more. How do we diagnose that? How do we know that? What, what, are the, what, what gives Jesus that impression there? What, what were they saying that was okay, but is not? Had they just completely given in to the society? Had they allowed politics and other things to infiltrate to the point that that was what was more important? Had they let family kind of traditions and those kind of things infiltrate to the point that that was the most important? Had they allowed cliques within their group, within their church, to form to a place where they had separate places and because of that there was division and without unity, that's what had led them to this point. There's nothing of that given. Jesus doesn't tell us. And part of the reason that I believe that it's not in the Bible for us exactly Exactly what's happening in this church is because it's not just one thing that can lead a church down the road that could place it in a place where it is in danger of having its lampstand removed and to be called dead or on the verge of death. That it's multiple things in multiple situations. I think there are some commonalities. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what Jesus is more concerned with here is not the circumstances that led them to death's door but for the ways for churches to get out of it. And as he's writing, we know, to the church in Sardis specifically, this was a specific letter to a specific church at a specific time in a specific place. But the principles of this letter are for all churches in all times in all places. And he gives them five commands. To get out of whatever it is that had led them into this spiral that was leading or had led to death. He starts by saying, and this is verse 2. Be alert and strengthen what remains was about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. It's important to notice here, before we get to the commands, that they were still doing things. It wasn't like they had... They had 
closed up shop and had moved on or had sold the building or had merged or any of that kind of stuff. They're still doing things. This point is that the works that you are doing are not works that are directed towards my God. They are works that you are doing either for your benefit or because it is routine or because that's what you think you have to do or to appease somebody in the congregation or to appease somebody outside the congregation that you are doing these things, but they are incomplete because they are not done for the right reason in the right way in the right direction. And he gives them two commands. First of all, be alert. Now, this was particularly important for this church because they were a part of a town that at one time was the most powerful town in that part of the world in the midst of the Roman Empire. And twice in the midst of the last couple of hundred, four hundred years before this letter was written, they had allowed someone to sneak into their town and to destroy them from within. In fact, what happened is there's stories about this in ancient histories about the town of Sardis. They had one of the most well-fortified walls in all of the land. And they had watch guards at every station except for one because it was a particularly difficult place. And they thought it was impossible for anyone to kind of, in modern terms, it was a rock face that ran right up to the wall. They didn't think there was any way that someone could just free climb that rock face and get to the top and get over And one particular army had one particular young man who says, I can do it. And there was no watchman placed on the one weakness they had. And he scaled it, went inside, went around to the front, and opened the gates for the invading army to enter. A couple of hundred years later, they had rebuilt. Things were good again. An army came to attack. Anybody want to guess what they left unguarded again? And allowed a guy to free climb, jump the wall, get to the front gates, and open it for the invading army to come in. And so when he says, be watchful, he's saying, make sure you are aware of everything that could be coming your way. Now here's what's interesting. Those two words, be watchful, be alert, they are kind of military terms. And there are lots of ways that you could interpret them or read them. If you have a Bible that's a different translation than mine, I'm reading and do read out of the Christian Standard Bible. If you have a different translation, you may actually have different words there. And one way that it is translated is wake up. And that's one of those places that when you read the Bible, you ought to read it with what the emphasis would be. Anybody here ever had a child, a brother, a sister, a friend that was very difficult to wake up? Anybody ever had one of those in your life? You don't have to point them out. And there comes a time when you walk down, you've heard the alarm a couple of times, the snooze button a couple of times, and you, it's time to get them up. They have to get up. And you walk down and you get into their room and you say to them, Could you please wake up at this moment? Is that how it goes? It's not how it goes. How does it go? What do you say? Get up! Wake up! Sorry, some of you, I just woke up. I apologize for that in here. Like you, you yell it, and there's a sense in with which Jesus is saying, You think you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up! And understand 
that you are in danger of losing everything as a church. He says, first of all, you need to strengthen what remains. He said there are parts of this church, parts of your belief system, parts of your works that are on the verge of dying themselves. Strengthen that. Make sure that's strengthened. Make sure that's strong. That's fortify what you still have. So the first command is wake up, be alert, understand that this is happening. Don't fool yourself anymore. Don't gloss over it. Say this is reality. In his well-known book, Jim Collins wrote in Good to Great that the first step for any organization, and he's writing in a business sense, the first step for any organization to turn it around and move from good to great is to face the harsh realities of what is actually happening. The first step in your life, the first step in my life, the first step in the life of this church, if we want to see God do amazing things, is to ask God and to say, what is it that we need to wake up about? What is it that we need to fortify? What is it that we need to strengthen more? And then what is it that we need to be aware has already faded? And then he gives them three more commands real quick in verse 3. He says, remember then. What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And then he gives that imagery again. If you don't, if you're not alert, if you don't keep it, if you don't repent, if you don't receive, then he says, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. Now that obviously has allusions to Jesus' earlier statements about the fact that the Son of Man would come like a thief in the night. But here it's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about a moment of judgment here and now that would be visited upon the church if they don't repent, if they don't remember, if they don't keep. And again, he gives this picture of a single one sneaking in when they least expect it in their minds if they did not have the things of the past of Sardis emanating through, reverberating, echoing in their mind, then they were missing it. Three things he tells them to do are to remember what you have received and heard. Not to get too deep down into the original language, but when you look at the original language, remember means remember. It means to think about. It means to constantly bring to mind. In fact, that word remember is in the present tense, which means that it is something that you do continually, always, redoing every day, every day, every day. We're remembering. We're remembering. We're remembering. Tomorrow I'm going to remember. Today I'm remembering. Yesterday I remember. Well, what are we remembering? Two things. What you have received. The tense of the verb that that is means your salvation that you receive from the Lord that has ramifications that goes on for eternity. So it's a singular event in time. When I accepted the Lord when I was nine years old, First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, remember what I received at that moment when Jesus Christ took his life and gave it for me and that his blood was counted as righteousness for me in that moment of my acceptance. I remember what I have received that has impacted my life from that day until now. And what you have heard, that is 
what you have been taught. Now that's not ramifications keep going. That is a continual understanding of things that have been taught to me in my past. Remember what Christ has done for you and remember what Christ has taught us and keep those things. Bring it to mind constantly and then do what God has called you to do. And then I said this the last few weeks. This could be a point in every sermon, almost every sermon that I ever preach. And that is when you realize what it is that you need to remember, when you realize what it is that you need to keep, when you realize what it is in your life and our church that has died, that you repent. That you say, I no longer want to do that. I no longer want to be about that. I no longer want to accept that. I no longer want to say that. I no longer want to do that. I no longer want to think that. Lord, I am bringing it to you and I am renouncing it and admitting it, confessing it, agreeing with you that it is sin. And I need you, Lord, and your strength and your help and your grace and your mercy to come into my life and to change me so that I not only walk in this direction, but I turn completely 180 around and I walk Walk in the opposite direction from that sin. And so his commands to how do we stem the tide, stop what's happening. We rem- First of all, we stand firm and we become watchful, making sure we are aware of all that is going on with the Lord's help. We strengthen what is already there that has not yet died. And then we remember and keep and repent. Verse 4, he tells them what's coming. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. By the way, it's going to be a lot about clothing in the next little bit. Most people think that the number one kind of money-making thing for Sardis was a wool business. And they, they were known because of the purity of their wool. And so when he talks about defiled clothing for them... A batch of defiled clothing would have been the worst thing they could have imagined. He said, there are a few of you that haven't defiled it, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. Scripture always talks about white clothes as being pure, as being holy, as walking with them, because it showed the absence of any kind of defilement. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. Just means you have eternity in heaven with him. And then he references something he said back in the Gospels. But will, for that that overcomes, you'll be dressed in white, you'll spend eternity, and I will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. You remember when Jesus was teaching and he said, if anyone will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge him before my father. But if anyone does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge him before my father. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So how do we know if we're dead? I think there are several paths, more paths than we have time to really kind of dive into today. But a couple of things that I do think are important for us to think about are what leads churches often to the place where they are, as it's described here, dead, or where they are in a place where their witness has been removed and they are no longer the church that Christ has called them to be. 
The first thing is that when we imagine Christianity and what our church is as something that is inherited from generation to generation, that can be detrimental to the personal relationship we're to have with Christ. If you think you're a Christian because your daddy was a Christian, you are not a believer. And we have lots of churches in the South where families just imagine that we pass on Christianity from one family to another. The reality is following Christ is an individual decision that happens among every person that exists on the earth. We've said it before, God doesn't have any grandchildren. That every single person has to make that decision for themselves. And it's not just, well, I think I'm a Christian because my family's tradition. If you are living off of going back to the heritage and the history of your family's faith and not your personal faith with Christ, then you are walking down a path that leads to destruction. And if churches are filled with people living off of past faith, then you're walking down a road of destruction. Any church that truly believes its best days are behind it have already sealed the fate moving forward. Because we serve a God that is always able to do more than we can ask or imagine. If you think the glory days were 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago or 5 years ago, then you've already started down the path that leads to death. The second thing that leads to death in churches and a removal of witness and the ability to do what God has called them to do is superficiality. That's a word I decided to say in that moment and realized how difficult it is to say. Surface level belief. You're doing all the stuff. We've had several churches that we've read in the book of Revelation that were doing stuff, but there was a problem underneath. Holding on to the past, holding on to the programs that were once important in your life, holding on to things. Doing the church thing because it's part of the routine and rhythm of your life without a real relationship with the Father. There are a lot of churches that have disconnected the power that comes to us from God in Jesus through the Spirit. We have disconnected from that and churches are trying to run everything on their own ability. And that is a path that leads to death. Their own intellectual ability, their own business sense, their own Strengths and weaknesses. Nothing in scripture tells us that's what's needed in order to be a church that is alive. First Baptist, if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, if you as an individual are going to be the person that God's called you to be, then you must have a connection that is real and vibrant to the living God. 
And I'm afraid when I look at the statistics out there of all that is happening in our world, when you look at generation to generation to generation of what is happening in the number of people that call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. Now, there's been some good news recently that's come out about a little bit of an uptick in this. But if you look from generation to generation to generation, what you see is that we are losing a large percentage of believers from one generation to the next. People that call them followers of Jesus to call themselves that, it gets lower every generation in America. And one of the reasons for that is something that I've said from this pulpit multiple times. And that is that we have parents that are trying to instill a faith in their children, but their own faith is not real and vibrant. And if your faith is not real, it will not matter to your kids. Or to think of it in a church direction, if your faith and your relationship with Jesus Christ is not real, then it won't matter to the next generation or to the people we're trying to reach in this community. Third way that it leads to death and destruction, and then we're done, is when cultural and business and societal measures of success become the measures of success for a church. You are going down a road that leads to death. When churches begin to worry more about business understandings and strategic initiatives that sound more like the culture around us than the scripture that should be guiding us, you're on the path to death. So when churches and their finance meetings sound more like business planning than stewardship as modeled by the parable of the talents, you're moving down a path towards death. When you start to account by the success of this church, by a flat number or a certain outcome that is unbiblical, or not unbiblical necessarily, just not in the Bible as part of what we should, then you're moving down a pathway towards death. Jesus says we need to be aware of all. Be alert. Be watchful. Strengthen those things that are good, that are grounded in the Word of God and in our relationship with the Father. Strengthen those things. And then remember what you have, what you've been given, and what you've been taught. Do those things. Keep those things. And repent of areas that you haven't. Here's what I love about our God. Even though this church is dead, our God specializes in bringing dead things to life. And he says, if you will do that, most people read that thing, dead, that's a hopeless situation. It's only hopeless if you serve a God different than mine. Because when we repent and turn to him, and focus on who He is and what He's calling us to do based on the relationship we had of Him and the Word of God and what it's telling us, that is the formula for revival, which literally means to be made alive again.
may we be aware. May we strengthen what is still here. May we remember and keep and may we repent. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will give us wisdom in this moment. Lord, as individuals and as a church, that you'll make us watchful. Lord, you'll help us to know what to strengthen. Lord, that we will remember what you have given to us and what we have heard, that we will keep it. And Lord, in those areas that we need to, that we'll repent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.